Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. I'm so excited to preach today. Okay. Uh, today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. So let me just tell you kind of where we are, where we've been uh, in the book of Exodus. Okay, the book of Exodus, we've only been in it for a few weeks now. I missed last weekend. Uh, we, we went on vacation, uh, and instead of coming home with a T-shirt, my family came home with uh, the coronavirus, worst souvenir ever. Uh, don't recommend it. But uh, So I missed last weekend. Um, if you were here last weekend, it was the shortest service that uh, we've ever had, or at least in the past six years we've had. The sermon was 24 minutes. I just need to go ahead and let you know it's not going to be 24 minutes today. Uh, sorry about, not, I'm not sorry, I love preaching. Uh, one, of our, one of our church members said, do I need to bring a snack? I said, maybe a lunch, but uh, you'll be okay. All right, so here's where we are, the book of Exodus. Um, we're trying to answer three questions from the book of Exodus, okay? Who am I? Who am I? Uh, who is God? And then who are we? So who am I as an individual? Uh, how has God created me? So week one, we talked about, we got, we started very general. I'm a part of God's people. I'm a part of God's people. And how God, from the very beginning of the book of Exodus, is picking up what he'd been doing all along in the book of Genesis, that he's building a people he is making them a covenant people, he's blessing them, and he is going to give them a land. And so he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham and all the way back to Adam and Eve. He's fulfilling that promise. And so he does that through, um, through us, through Jesus, by faith. He makes us a part of his family. He builds us into the kingdom of God. We are the body of Christ in the church of God. And so he is building in us today a church. And he's building a church for himself throughout all history, and the gates of hell cannot stand against God's church. And so in Moses, we also learn that we are God's workmanship. Each one of us are created in Christ's image. In his image, we are created that way, and we are done so on purpose for a purpose, that God creates us in his image, we are his workmanship, and that means that we have been created and set in a time and place that God has made us for the day, and the day for us, or as the words of Ephesians chapter 2 say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So when God thought about all of history and he said, who do I want to be my ambassadors in 2022 in Seneca, South Carolina? He said, I want this group of people. And that's a humbling thought. 
He chose us. And so that means you and I are uniquely wired and placed for such a time as this. And so today, what I want us to see in the text is that uh, God, who God made us is often buried beneath sin, shame, pain, and fear. And we have to learn how to bury our past or our past is going to bury us. And so that's what I want us to see out of our scripture passage today. I'm going to focus mainly on verses 11 through 15, and we'll look a little bit into the later verses, but here's what I want to do. Grab your Bible. Let's dive in together. Are you ready? Amen? Okay, here we go. Verse 11 says, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, you know the story of Moses. We looked at it last week, or a couple weeks ago now, and how Moses was placed in the river by his mama. And it's the same river, which is interesting, the same river that the Egyptians would have thrown the Hebrew children into to kill all the firstborn sons, or all the sons of Israel. The same river the mama puts the baby into in a a basket or a box, and floats him down the river and prays for God to have mercy on him. Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby in a basket, and Pharaoh's daughter has mercy and grace on this child who should be destroyed, and she calls a Hebrew to nurse and wean the child. And so you know the story, okay? And that that Hebrew was Moses' mama. And so what we need to understand is, After he was weaned, then he went into the house of Pharaoh and was raised as one of that house. So he, but he knows he's grown up now and he knows that the Hebrew people are his people. How does he know? Well, I think the scripture gives us some clues. Number one, Pharaoh's daughter allowed him to be nursed by a Hebrew woman. It obviously means that she didn't want to disconnect Moses from the Hebrew people altogether. She could have chosen anybody to nurse this baby, but she chose a Hebrew. Second, that nursing could have, been, could have lasted upwards of three years. This is well after walking and talking, right? And so can you just imagine being Moses' mama, knowing that in just a few short days, weeks, months, or years, you're going to have to give this baby to the house of Pharaoh to be raised in the Pharaoh's house? Do you, can you imagine that from a mom's perspective? Can you imagine all of the times where sweet mama is praying over Moses Just begging God for him to know the God, the one true God of the world. Not all these false gods in Egypt, but to know him. Can you imagine all the stories that Pharaoh's mama is telling, or excuse me, that Moses' mama is telling Moses? Just trying to ingrain the truth over and over in Moses' mind. Third, just a few chapters later, we see see that, that, I think it's in chapter 6, that Moses knows that Aaron and Miriam are his siblings. So we're given some clues that he knows these are his people. And he goes out. He goes out from the house of Pharaoh and looks upon the people. Now I just want you to notice. Moses could have said, you know, I went from a slave family to the house of Pharaoh. I'm living the dream. But that's not what we see. We see there is a, a man in Moses that chose to be identified with the very people of God. He chose to find his identity in Christ or in God rather than anyone else. And this is a special thought. Then it says, 
Then he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. So imagine Moses going out, walking around the construction zone of Egypt, or wherever they are exactly, looking around, looking at his brothers enslaved, or enslaved and, and seeing their burden. He looked upon their burdens. I, what, what is happening? If you're putting yourself in Moses' shoes, what's happening in Moses' heart as he's looking on his brother's affliction? I think we see in this passage that the burden of his people is being supernaturally transferred into Moses' heart. Maybe more correctly, the burden in God's heart for God's people to redeem them from this affliction and oppression is being supernaturally transferred into Moses' heart. In other words, God looks down on the millions of Israelites in slavery, the death of their male children, the affliction and the oppression that they experience, and then he looks around and says, who can I share my burden with? And in Moses, he finds a man who he can share that burden with. Now, Hebrews 11 kind of gives us a picture, a commentary of this passage. And so I want you to look at Hebrews 11 with me in verse 24 to 26. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says it this way, he considered the reproach of Christ. Had Christ been born when Moses was alive? No. But he says he considered the reproach of the Messiah, of the chosen one, of the one who would come, the Redeemer. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What a man Moses is we see here. God looks down on this man who chose not to be identified by the house of Pharaoh, but rather be identified with God's people in slavery and with the God of those people. He chose to look down upon that man and share his heart with him. And Moses has what Bill Hybels calls a Popeye moment. Come on now, how many of you remember watching Popeye? Popeye, now I love, love Popeye, old, old Popeye, black and white Popeye. Popeye had the love of his life, this skinny, unsightly woman named Olive Oil, right? Yeah, but he loved her fiercely. And then his enemy, who's Popeye's enemy? Bluto. Who said Brutus? You got your cartoons wrong, okay? Bluto, okay? Bluto. Now, some of you are of the generation that you're just going to have to go YouTube this, okay? It's true. It happens. Every Popeye episode is the same. Every one of them. Olive oil, love his life, gets in, in trouble with Bluto, and then Popeye comes to the rescue. The Popeye moment is Popeye, his pipe in his mouth starts smoking, you remember? And he says, that's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. I'm proud of you people. I've never been more proud of my church than right. Okay. That's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more, right? And then he grabs, he looks for the closest can of spinach, and, and, and immediately his muscles grow. I, that's why I ate spinach as a kid. And so let me just tell you, God's looking for burdened people who've had the Popeye moment where they say, that's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. God's looking for people like that. Maybe he's looking for people that God can burden with his heart for other people. 
He's looking for people that he can share his heart and his burden with. He's looking for Popeyes. And in Moses, he looks and he finds one. He finds a person he can share his heart with. I just want to ask, can we imagine what God felt as he's looking over his people in that day? I want you to just ask yourself that next question. Can you imagine what God would feel if he were with us today and could express it? What would God feel as he looks upon our community, our culture, our country, our world? How would God's heart be burdened today? When he looks upon oppression, it takes a lot of different forms or injustice or the war in Ukraine. It's funny how that war is not headlines anymore. But can I tell you, it's headlines in God's economy. How he looks across even just our little state and he sees the, the, the foster adoption crisis. There are 150 million orphans in our world today. Now he looks upon that. He looks upon the violence that we see as a country or the sexual confusion that he, we have in our country or the family deterioration that we have in our world or refugees or abortion or you name it. People who've never heard of Jesus, do you know that there are five billion with a B billion people who are separated from Christ today? Five billion. There's seven point nine billion people who do not identify with Christ. And can we just be honest? Two point nine billion identify with Christianity in some way, shape, or form. But let's just be real. All of them aren't Christians either. But five billion people exist, are living and breathing today. Almost one billion of those have never heard the name of Jesus. There is no gospel witness in their language. Can you imagine what God feels? And he's looking across churches like ours for a people who would say, God, I'm willing for you to burden my heart with with, with what burdens yours. Can I just be honest? My heart's burdened with lots of things. But when I look at what the burdens of my heart are, my heart is burdened with things that matter little in eternity. What burdens you? Will it matter in 80 years? Would you allow, in the, the stillness that I feel here, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, would you allow God to lay His burdens on top of your heart? Would you allow God to displace your burdens with His? And just a warning, when God does that, it will change the trajectory of your life. Verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. Now, let's be honest. If we're looking at Moses, we're going, all right, Mo, I was with you until now. 
right heart, wrong actions. Right? Are you with me? Moses, I get it, man. I understand how the burden in your heart is so overwhelming that you feel compelled to action. But if we can just be honest, that was correct anger. It was the right desire for justice and kind of the wrong application. You, you did the wrong thing, even though you had the right heart. And God would remind us that what we do with those burdens that he gives us, how we do what we do, is just as important as our heart is. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, after these two Hebrews are now struggling, so he kills an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. Now two Hebrews are fighting with themselves. I mean, can you imagine what Moses is thinking? Oh my gosh, here we go again. You guys? What are y'all fighting about? Can you imagine how God looks down on his church some days and goes, You too? Come on. He says, verse 14, one of the, the slaves, one of the Hebrew slaves says, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Answer. Who, what's the answer? Who made him a prince and a judge over them? God did. God did. And we need to see that. God created Moses. God wired Moses. God uniquely placed Moses in Pharaoh's house. And he did it for this day. Acts chapter 7 gives us a little bit of another commentary on this passage. Acts chapter 7 says that when Moses was 40 years old, came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. God had placed Moses there to be a redeemer. That, that God would give them salvation by Moses' hand, but they didn't understand it yet. And so in verse 15, what we see is Moses was afraid. Surely the things know, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, if you're wondering where in the world is Midian compared to Egypt... You've got Egypt over here. You've got kind of Israel up here on the eastern uh, side of um, the Mediterranean Sea. And in between, you've got the, the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. And, and the Midian sits just on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba in modern-day Saudi Arabia, way western Saudi Arabia in the desert. And he goes there and he sits down by a well. We'll come back to the well idea in a few minutes. But here's what I want you to see, the truths that I want you to behold today in this passage. The first one is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, you might say, well, that was a very timely point for that passage. Can I just say that passage was written into my sermon weeks ago because I intended to preach this last week. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139 says it this way. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Now let me just stop and give a commentary. What we believe is that science has finally caught up with Scripture. 
We've always believed that, that life began at conception in the womb. Why? Because God was very clear about that. That God created life that way. And science is finally in agreement. And we're, we're going good. I want you to understand that the Bible's never had to catch up with science. It's the other way. Now, we also don't believe that inside a womb there's knitting needles, right? We believe that this is a metaphor that God is using to say that what, what's happening is something that only God has done. Then he says, Psalm 139 continues, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So I want you to circle in your mind, frame. And then it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Circle in your mind or in your Bible the word unformed substance. And it goes on, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Does this sound like Moses? God intricately made him. God created his frame. And this idea of unformed substance, which we'll talk about in a minute, frame is physical bodies. Unformed substance is likely personality, your gifts, your passions, the things that you're zealous about. This unformed substance and then it says, so we see frame, unformed substance, that God created you and wired you specifically, uniquely for the day and the day for you. And then we see in your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me. Do you see it? You were made for the day and the day was made for you. Did you catch that? When God placed you here in 2022 in Seneca, South Carolina, right here to be at Seneca Baptist Church, is not an accident. There is no accident. God made you for the day and the day for you. The question for us is, am I living in God's identity or in the identity that I've shaped for myself? So we see not only my frame, my body, we see not only our unformed substance, our personality, our passions, our gifts, our zeal. We also see that God shaped days, that God intends to use that which He has formed for His purpose. And so we see that in Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, God designed Moses. And God is about to use Moses in the way that He designed him for the reason that He designed him. God created his frame. God gave him a personality, a passion, a gift, a zeal, and God plans to use them. The problem, the problem is that Moses tries using God's gifts apart from wisdom, apart from God's leadership. So God made Moses for the day and the day for Moses. But what you see in this passage is a man who doesn't yet know, know what to do with what God put in him. He doesn't yet know what to do with what God put in him. Right here in this passage we see he's got a zeal and he's got a passion and he's got gifts but they're chained at this moment to immaturity. 
they're chained to a lack of wisdom. And though that immaturity and lack of wisdom almost end, to, end his life, don't they? Pharaoh heard about it and he wanted to kill him. So Moses overnight loses position and prestige and possession as a son of Pharaoh. And he now runs away into Midian, into the wilderness. And he is now a sojourner in the middle of nowhere. Our gifts, our passions, our zeal, the experiences that we have that shape who we are, God gave those to you. God gave you gifts and passions at birth. God placed you in the home, however functional or dysfunctional it was. God allowed you to experience difficult things. You think Moses would have chosen the life that he lived? But what we see is God superintending, superabounding over all of his experiences. He says, listen, all the experiences I'm going to use with your passions and your gifts and your personality, I'm going to use it all together to do something. And our gifts, passion, zeal, they are given to us at birth. And guess what? They're redeemed by our Creator at salvation. When we turn to Christ, God takes an ordinary gift, an ordinary passion, and He begins to redeem it in such a way that He can use His passion and His gift that He put in us, that burden which so burdens us, He uses that for His glory. And look at Moses. God made Moses to be exactly who God wanted him to be. He did that from birth. And he redeemed his frame. And he redeemed his unformed substance in an encounter with God on the mountain in chapter 3. We're going to get to that in just a few weeks. I want you today to see how fearfully and wonderfully made you are. Look, Look at me. Look at me. When God created you, he did something beautiful inside of you. Now, I know I've spent a long time telling you that we're, we're sinners, we're wicked, we're separated from God, but I want you to also understand that who He created you to be, what He did in you, what He placed in you, the seed that He planted in you when you were born is a beautiful thing. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by a holy God. You, you hear me? And God now wants to redeem it and use it. So we see that in Moses, but we also see a man in this passage with a great deal of pain and sin and trauma in his past. He was raised in a house where he knew that he didn't belong. He went out to his people, even though he lived in this house, he wanted to be with this house. He went out to his people, he looked upon their burdens, and he was grieved over it. Then he killed a man and he buried him in the sand. Not a way to enter gospel ministry, is it? Now, I'm sure of this. When we look across this room, the few of us that are here this morning, there's not millions of people hearing my voice, but I know that if there were five of us in this room, we could tell stories of pain and trauma and difficulty that each one of us has experienced. I know that some of you have pain somewhere in your lives. And there are two sources of that pain. 
Bible reveals there are two sources. One is fallen nature. Cancer. It's fallen nature. Heart attacks. Death. Miscarriages. Tornadoes. It's fallen nature. And some of us have deep wounds and hurt and pain from those things. The other source of pain is fallen man. Divorce. Abuse. Murder. Abortion. Slander. Gossip. Sin. That's fallen man. And, and some of you have been wounded and you're carrying the words that somebody said to you decades ago. You're carrying those words and those wounds with you today. You've heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You will heal from a stick or a stone way faster than you'll heal from a word. There are secrets in this room that you've never shared. There are people who've been emotionally, physically, verbally, sexually abused in this room. There are people who've been abandoned by people that they love and trusted, neglected. There are people who are carrying extreme pain. And so what we see in Moses' life is he didn't know how to deal with his pain. So we have a choice that we can learn to deal with our pain. We can bury our pain. We can let God work through our pain. We can bury it or it will bury us. Oftentimes, who God's created us to be is buried under wounds and words. Moses, Moses learned over time to process and deal with his pain. So let's, let's learn to do that. So the question that I want to ask for some application point is, how do we deal with a past of sin and pain and trauma? Ryan, you're right. There are things that I'm carrying around that have been painful forever, and I don't know how to deal with them. How do I deal with that? I want to give you a phrase. Walking with God, head on, over a period of time, in community. How do I deal with pain? Walking with God. You deal with it head on. You deal with it over a period of time. And you do it in community. Now, I told you I'd come back to the well. What I want to show you is these things in this passage, okay? How do we do it? Walking with God, walking with God. Let's look down at verse 15. He sat by a well. The well in the book of Genesis is really significant. The book of Genesis reveals a number of wells, okay? In Genesis chapter 16, there is Bir Laharoi, okay? That is where Hagar is, uh, is cast out and she's experiencing some difficulty. And she goes out into the wilderness and God meets her there. And 
Bir Laharoi means the well of the living one who sees me. Moses went and he sat by a well. Can I just remind you today that the God who was with Hagar is the God who is with you today? No matter what you've gone through, God is the God who sees your pain. He knows what you're going through. He is there with you. He is the well of the living one who sees me. Genesis chapter 21, in verse 33, the second well in Genesis Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at the well named Beersheba. And there he called upon the Lord, the everlasting God. Wells were a place where where Abraham met with God. Beersheba. And it was a place that God or Abraham went down to. And Isaac went down to worship the Lord there at the well of Beersheba. Genesis chapter 26. There's another well in Isaac's life, named Rehoboth. And it means, for the Lord has made room for us. In the book of Genesis, both Jacob and Isaac found their wives at a well. In the book of Genesis, wells were places where God met people in difficult situations in life, where the physical refreshment of the water in the well was a picture of a spiritual refreshment they received as God was faithful to meet them there in the middle of their pain and keep his promise and give them a spiritual refreshment. Jesus even says in John chapter 7, he says, I am the living water. Do you remember? And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers. The King James Version says springs or wells of living water. And then John goes on to say he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you, you can't deal with your past alone. Whether it's sin, your sin, or someone else's sin against you, your pain, your trauma, your sin, it will bury you unless you let God bury it. You can't handle it alone. So I want to encourage you, if you have pain, trauma, difficulty, wounds or words that you're carrying around from life, if that's where you are, I want you to meet God at the well of His mercy morning by morning. He can heal you. He can forgive you. He can redeem your pain. I want to remind you this morning that you are not what happened to you. You are not your sin. Why? That's why Jesus died. Jesus died to remove your identity from what you did or what happened to you and to give you a new identity. Jesus died to define you differently. The gospel says that it's the blood of Christ that takes care of those things, that washes those things away. It's the blood of Christ that makes you new. It's the blood of Christ that crucifies the old and raises to life the new. And so let the waters of the gospel wash over you day by day. And he can even take your pain, your suffering, and he can weaponize your pain against the enemy. One day your mess, the mess of your life, will be turned into a message in a ministry if you let God do it. Secondly, head on. Head on. 
they'll get shorter, I promise. Head on. So can I just be honest? Our, our great tendency when we're talking about dealing with pain, our great tendency is to do something called spiritual bypass. Okay? When we're talking about pain in our life, difficulty in our life, trauma in our life, sin in our life, we just want to do some spiritual bypass. So what does that mean? Number one is I just completely ignore it and I bury it in the sand. All right? I bury it. You try to forget it. You think, well, God wouldn't want me to forget about it or wouldn't want me to think about it. So we just try to forget it. We bury it. Maybe we medicate it away. Now, I just need you to know, I'm not opposed to medication. I'm married to a pharmacist by trade. But that is not our first way that we deal with sin, pain, trauma. Jesus is. Okay? Medication does not deal with the underlying causes of pain in my heart and my life. So we bury it in the sand. And the problem is that what we bury in the sand, if we don't kill it, will eventually come up to haunt us, won't it? <laughs> or we cover it with some shallow spirituality. We cover it with some sp shallow spirituality. We, we recite a couple pithy Bible verses. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I believe the Bible is sufficient for every problem, pain, sin that we face. But we've got to deal with it head on. We read books like Seven Steps to a Better You, and we hope that we deal with our pain that way. We go over an abundance of Bible studies or conferences or watch or listen to so, so many sermons because we're trying to deal with this pain. We kind of accept some pseudo-godly wisdom. You just got to forgive and forget. That ain't true. You can forgive something, but you probably won't forget something, will you? Do you know that God forgives but doesn't forget? Because if he forgot, he'd cease to be God. What it says in the Bible is that he chooses not to remember anymore. And true healing, when we do it with God head on, will lead us to a place where I choose not to think about the pain anymore. In the, the great theological masterpiece, Lion King, young Simba runs away from the pain of his past and his perceived failures, and he meets the prophets, Timon and Pumbaa. And they tell him, you got to put your past behind you. And they sing the great hymn, Hakuna Matata. It's going to be stuck in your head the rest of the day. I'm, I'm being silly here, guys, okay? <laughs> and, and then he comes in contact with this really crazy baboon named Rafiki. And what he finds is that he can't put the past behind him until he faces it head on. And he learns, that he learns who he is by confronting the pain of his past as his father appears who appears in the heavens. Now, Disney has lost their minds. I'm not claiming anything, but I'm just saying it's interesting. Go home and watch Lion King. So you've got to face it head on. You've got to face it with God. And that's going to be hard work. But that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came to earth to be on the hook for pain and sin. There on the cross, Jesus both took on himself all of the pain and sin of the entire world and came to be the cure of all the pain and sin for the entire world. 
The cross is how God confronts our brokenness and how he begins the healing process and how God reminds us through the cross that we never have to endure pain alone. Head on with God in community. I'll talk more about, or over a period of time, we're going to spend more on that next week, but Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before God was ready to use him. Over time, over a period of time, in community, he meets this man, is invited into the man or the house of a man named Ruel. And the name Ruel in Hebrew means a friend of God. We're not sure what kind of priest Ruel was, but what we learn over the next handful of chapters in the book of Exodus is that Ruel does seem to honor the one true God of the Bible. And so I just want to encourage you, you need to find a strong Christian or Christian community who is trustworthy and enter into a friendship with them. Trust somebody with your sin and your past and your pain. I want you to know we at Seneca Baptist Church have access to some Christian counseling. If you need it, reach out to me. I'd love to put you in contact with them. Ask them to help you walk through that. You can't do it alone. Not only do you need God, but you were created for community. With God and the family of God, all your life is meant to be done in community. God has given his church to you as a gift to walk through your pain, sin, and trauma and to make you more like Jesus. Don't ignore what God's doing. So let me bring this home and, and apply this. Some of our hearts are burdened with things that don't matter in light of eternity. Would you be bold enough courageous enough to pray, God, displace my burdens, my passions with the things that matter to you. And God, if there's anything burying that which you have fearfully and wonderfully made in me, would you help me to deal with it? With you, head on over a period of time in community. Because I want to be the man or woman that you've created me to be so that I might be used for the purpose that you set for me. Would you join me in prayer? Why don't you stand with me? If you'd like to come and kneel at the altar and bring your sin or your burden before the Lord, you'd do that today. Father, we come And we acknowledge that in this room, I acknowledge that in this room, Father, there are people that are hurting. There are people who've been burdened, broken, abused, neglected, sinned against in horrific, heinous ways. And Father, may we find healing at the well of Jesus, the living water. May our past of sin, shame, hurt, pain, may it not bury that which you've created in me. God, would you use a sermon like today to begin healing in us so that we might recognize who you've created us to be, that you made us for the day and the day for us, and that, Father, we would begin to live out of our identity as a child of God. 
And if there's anybody in this room who's not trusted Jesus, that their sin, shame, past failures do still define them, would today they come to trust Christ and be saved. We love you, O Lord. We praise you. And we pray that you'd raise up a church of people for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. As we conclude, we're going to conclude. Christopher, I'd like to ask you to pray for us on the way out. As we conclude, let's worship together that no matter what, God holds us fast. If you'd like to speak to me, I'm right here.